Welcome to This Week in Common Sense, starring Paul Jacob. My name is Timothy Virkula, and we're going to talk about the big stories of the week that have appeared at Common Sense with Paul Jacob, which is Paul's website that he's been working on since 1999. That's at thisiscommonsense.org. This is Friday the 11th of November, 2022. That's 11 plus 11 equals 22. That doesn't happen very often. And we're going to go ahead with this thing. I usually see the uh, the today's every every uh, day at thisiscommonsense.org. Uh, Monday through Friday, we have a commentary. On the weekend, we have this podcast. But every day, seven days a week, we have a quote, a great thought, um, and we have a today in in freedom and history, and and alert people to things that happen hundreds of years ago that that might have some impact or or whenever they happen but uh today or not today uh on november 6th which would have been sunday uh spike cohen who has i think such a neat name uh and people might think well i i know uh you know cohen's a, a common name and spike's a cool name and and uh but this is the vice presidential candidate of the libertarian party in 2020 <clears throat> and uh, I think he's actually a really interesting guy. I've never met him, uh, but uh, but I think he's a, a interesting guy and smart and and well spoken. And he had a quote that we featured this week: "Statism is the very paradoxical idea that people are inherently greedy and self interested, and therefore we should pick a handful of them and give them all the power." Yeah, that's a good, that's a good, nice statement. Yes, it is. Now, I wonder what he thinks statism is. You know, it means something specific when Ludwig von Mises used it, and it was used at the end of the 19th century and the early 20th century. Uh, Mises called it etatism, uh, you know, in French. And uh, and uh, it what it was is the opposite of liberalism. Liberalism was extremely limited government and, uh, you know, just not all that much power centralized and that kind of thing it was just it was liberalism that's what it, that's what it was and statism was pretty much almost all the attempts no matter what to make the state really big and powerful and intrusive in every aspect of life it was done by you know whether it was a plutocrat who was demanding statism or whether it was a, the demagogues or, or the or the people themselves whoever demanded it in whatever form that was statism because it was statism was everything and that's what it means it doesn't mean there's a state right because very few people actually don't believe there should be a state. But uh, very few places uh, lack one. Yes. Uh, and uh, so, well, that's a, that's actually another story. But yes, yes, that's the, that is one of the important things to remember. States have been ubiquitous for a long time. Of course, through most of human history, there haven't been states. Or through most of human prehistory, there haven't been straight states. And even at the edge of civilizations, there weren't states. Uh, most tribes, most clans didn't really have states. They had something else. And I, I think that that through much of U.S. history, many, many people did not live in a real state. There was no governmental authority. I mean, you had just the, the, the expanse. And uh, so so anybody who kind of wanted to get away could get away, not just, you know, not after robbing the bank, get away type thing, but could could move. You don't like this place? Move on. There's plenty yeah. of plenty of land. And there's there is a sort of a an kind of a quasi famous work by economists looking at it's called the not so wild wild west, and it looked at uh, the settling of the west as a non governmental process. It was it weren't states that did it. it was It was actually intentional groups uh, hiring guides out, and you know there was everything was for hire. And states de developed over time, and you know, in, in various settled places. But much of the actual work of the early settlers and the early explorers, of course, was not state even state sponsored in any way. Anyway, but yeah, uh, but anyway, the, the Spikes Cohen statement That's about fun. statism is excellent. Yes, even though you're right, I, I I thought statism, you know, although libertarians use the term statism a lot, and it means bad statism. <laughs> well, it means it means just it just means the excess of states over the over liberty. 
It was a, pre pretty carefully defined by the individualists at the end of the 19th century. And I think they were basically right. Now, we have friends who are anarcho-capitalists. I mean, both of us have friends who are anarcho-capitalists. I have some close friends who are anarcho-capitalists. And I like the philosophy. It's very interesting. But it, to me, it's all provisional and, and speculative. And, uh, and they believe that any state, if you advocate any state, you're a statist. And that's an abusive language, in my opinion. That's not what it meant. And that's... And, right. I don't think we, and I don't think that liberals and Republicans and constitutionalists should cede to the anarcho-capitalists this weird definition of statism. I just think and, and and I think there's, you know, theoretically we can think all kinds of things, but we live in a very real <clears throat> world. And <clears throat> I always think back to Thoreau's civil disobedience essay, uh, where he says that. Uh, unlike some pro, so some no government men, he basically said, "Look, I'm a I'm a no government man. You know, government is best which governs least, and that means government that governs not at all." Um, and I think what he was talking about is what I would call voluntarism, voluntarianism, which is not an easy word to say, but is I think the right concept. Um, I want a society in which all interactions are by persuasion and yeah, sure. i also recognize i'm not going to see that society and probably in a zillion years never <clears throat> will we see a society in which that's the way it is because that would have, that would be a near perfect society but but he he went on to say but unlike some non uh no government uh advocates or or men i i say you know, first, give me a better government. Yeah. And that's, to me, that's facing reality and saying, okay, now, what is what is the first step we need to take? We, it doesn't have to be all the theoretical. In fact, it can't be theoretical. It has to be real. They have to actually change the laws. The police have to stop enforcing this law and start enforcing that one or whatever. It's, it, it's very real. And and I think when you look at it that way, the whole some debate between whether theoretically you're a no government person or you're a minimal government person, you know, is is pretty unimportant, especially in a world in which there are so many maximum government people. Yeah, I mean, I yeah. sometimes feel like, you know, God put me on this earth to fight totalitarianism. And and I have just I I see. You know, you see the rise of China, you see the sort of government that Russia has been, not just since, you know, now with Putin, not just the Soviets, their whole history has been total no freedom, zero freedom. And it's just how much power they had, how much of a military they had. But we also, as we often talk about on this podcast, we see the fact that that the intellectuals the big media, the big politicians, the deep state, uh, the intelligentsia in America all want a total government that makes almost every decision for people in a really nice way, unless you're a white supremacist, fascist pig, and then they might smash your head in. Or if that government were to change course, maybe they'd flip all of that. But any way you slice it, it's totalitarianism. It's, it, and, and it, it, it's there even in the way like they would have a, you know, we talk about the safety net. They're not talking about a safety net. They're talking about a, a bunch of, you know, a bunch of bags that they're shoving you into. And and that that whole idea of uh, totalitarianism is, I think, critical. And the, the most important book I ever read, I read in like seventh or eighth grade, eighth grade, I guess it was, uh, 1984, Orwell's book. And um, there's a quote, and I'll find it, and we'll put it up on the screen, but it would take me a few minutes to find it. It's the quote about the intellectuals and that we've talked about before, uh, 1984, it was on a, a, a book and we we've run it as a today, you know, or as a thought at, at this is commonsense.org. But it's just Orwell talking about how popular totalitarianism is among intellectuals in the West. And, you know, it's it's you know, so this is not a new phenomenon. 
and and in fighting, you know, I, I'm I, I've in in recent years, really since 2019, and then you can go back at this is kind of sense, and we talked about China quite a bit, uh, one child policy and other things going way back, but I've I've started writing much more about it because I think I fear we're headed or already in. Uh, sometimes worse, the, the, the dates get rearranged later when we figure it all out. But but we're headed to World War Three, and I think I think if we don't do some things, uh, we're gonna we're gonna see ourselves in World War Three. And if we don't do some things, we're gonna see ourselves in World War Three losing. Um, and I'd like to win if we're gonna be in it, and I'd like to not get in it. And and so I think we have to be, you know, we have to be strong and and uh and i'm gonna kind of lose my train of thought as to uh then i can take a step back and i can quote one of the orwell intellectual quotes that we've drawn i don't think it's the one you're talking about though here he says i do not believe that the kind of society i described necessarily will arrive but i believe allowing of course for the fact that the book is a satire that something resembling it could arrive I believe also that totalitarian ideas have taken root in the minds of intellectuals everywhere. Yes, that is the quote. That is okay. the quote. And of course, the the you know the the point of that is that we live in a world in which there are totalitarian powers that are super scary, and add to that the fact that the United States of America is a free is, is as i've said before is the most totalitarian the most free totalitarian country in the history of the world because our government has and our society in the sense that the government controls the schools and the medicine and the and the everything and and the belief is that it should do everything for us or tell us what to do and and that's not how we got rich it's not how we got powerful, but it's, you know, and, and so it's this this battle that I think Americans are fighting, and we're not alone. All over the world, they want freedom. They want a, a government where they have some say and, uh, and, and have human rights and protections. And so we're not alone. And but but boy, we're fighting. We're not just fighting totalitarianism galloping around the world. We're fighting it right here at home to defend and expand on Orwell, we're fighting intellectuals. And intellectuals as a group of people have always been tempted by power in some way. There's a lot of, there's intellectuals after all, these are people like, perhaps like me, who don't get a lot of money easily in the world. You know, they, 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 they witness people who are much less smart than themselves making lots of money and that fills them with envy. And they think, well, if I'm so smart, why not rich? And so they figure out ways of making themselves rich through the state. And we have a system that basically circulates intellectuals into government and into power, into, you know, who was in CIA, the CIA. It's actually not a dumb, you know, it's not the dumb guy down the street. It's an intellectual no, stuff. So. No. And yes. there's a lot of people in really important bureaus and, I mean, Fauci is an intellectual in some sense, and so are the people who run, you know, these the, the, even the medical yes. engineers who run the CDC. These people are intellectuals, and they have specialized, they have special privileges in society because they are members of bureaus, or they are in the raw raw committee for the bureaus. And the cheerleaders get a lot of play in, in a lot of sporting events, and our cheerleaders are the media. And who are they cheering? They're cheering the they're cheering rah rah for the bureaus and the. the Democrats. <laughs> well, yes, yes, uh, and and maybe one of the reasons the Republicans are so pathetic as a as a political group is that they're kind of in the unenviable position of saying they're against special power and privileges, but the but how do you get elected and what do you, how do you keep a government going? Well, you do it through special powers and privileges. It's hard to break that cycle and they never really do it. Uh, the only thing they've majorly accomplished, you know, that they've set for the last 30 years, 40 years, they've been doing, trying to do, they actually accomplished this last year or two and they didn't mean to. They got, 
the end of abortion uh, as as a you know Roe v. Wade as a universally federally recognized right, and now it's not that anymore. That was something they were allegedly working for, but no politician did it. And how did they get it? They got it because the least apt person in America somehow got to be president, of the <laughs> and and his sheer cussing. Strange times we do indeed. And his sheer cussedness is, is led to that. I look at it, I guess, more negatively. I'm the I'm the negative guy here all of a sudden uh, uh, because I I do give Trump credit for picking three justices that that were actually kind of favored the same things he said he favored. Um, but I kind of want to give blame to going all the way back, Nixon, Reagan. Uh, Ford had a pick. His his pick was one of the most liberal. Uh, uh, Ford picked Stevens, uh, who was a very liberal justice, and then and then Reagan and and Bush picking Souter. Souter never voted right on a case the whole time he was in. It was you know. That well, was... I don't consider Bush and Ford to be conservatives at all. I mean, I don't dislike Ford. Ford was was. More moderate, but certainly, I mean, I don't know how you could excuse picking Stevens and and picking Souter. You know, that's that's just well. Souter was sort of considered a, a backwoods, perhaps rebel. I think at the time, wasn't he from some small? He state? was in New Hampshire, as Sununu suggested him. A lot of that's just simply uh, the prejudice of Republicans for small states, which I kind of like. You know, I'm, I'm all for that, but uh, I don't think that they really were thinking. You deeply, and Trump wasn't thinking deeply either. He was just following what, I mean, he needed to appease his conservative friends, especially that the Democrats had turned on him so crazily. I'll tell you who deserves credit for that is Leonard Leo, who's gotten that got a, I think a billion dollar contribution from uh, from a, a fellow in Chicago, uh, and and uh, is head of the Federalist Society. He gave Trump lists of people. And said, "Here's here's where they are, and here's where they're, and here's why they're good, and and you know, it's a smart thing to do." It, it, I wish somebody would have given that in, uh, to previous Republican presidents, and they would have listened. I don't think Republicans understand what to do if they get power. You know, you you say that it's interesting how how brash Newt Gingrich was, and and I guess is in a, in a certain sense. But I always I I didn't see him as so outrageous uh, uh, because he was battling against a, a Congress. And and I, I, I'm no fan of Newt Gingrich. He was terrible on term limits. He wanted power. He wasn't looking to free America. And so I got, I, I don't really have anything good to say about Newt Gingrich, but I don't have anything good to say about the people who hated Newt Gingrich because they hated him because he came in and wanted to actually take the majority. And uh, Robert Michael, uh, who was the minority leader for years, was he would have been just fine being the minority leader for the next 20 or 30. Let's keep going. This is working just great. Right. And uh, and and so it it's you know it's it's interesting that's that has has made politics, I think, more uh you know more partisan and and rougher and so on. But you know, be be careful what you wish for, because if you want, you know, politics to be stagnant, that's not that's not any better. Well, at this is commonsense.org. You had five pieces and you weren't promoting stagnation. Should we talk about those pieces? Because I would maybe. think that we should just kind of shoot the breeze. I think everything's going good. People are liking this. No, uh, uh, well, we should talk right off about the best uh, title ever. Punching Fauci. Well, that but, got you in trouble, too. Yeah, but, but I put a question mark there. I'm just asking questions. I, I don't think Cost of Contact likes uh, questions. I don't think they care about the question mark. So yes. we should explain that. We wrote a piece called Punching Fauci, and then every day we put the thing as an email out to the people who subscribe. It's the easiest yes. way to get your pieces, actually, if you subscribe. People should go yes. to thisiscommonsense.org and subscribe. It's really easy. And then... For a day, we couldn't get it out there. Yes, well, by the afternoon, late that afternoon, it got out. But, uh, but it was, and and of course, no knowledge of why it didn't work. 
it could have just been a glitch or whatever, but but uh, the person who does it was pretty convinced that this was no glitch. It was we're blocking this, and and then I think when following up, they didn't have any reason really to block it. I mean, if you read the piece, it's talking about something that actually happened. It's you know it, this idea, and we have another piece. The, the Tuesday's piece was really in essence about the same, uh, about this subject of us trying to get the punching Fauci piece out and someone deciding to stop you because maybe you're not saying the right thing. And maybe you're not, I mean, if we want a society in which you can't post things on Facebook or you can't send an email out or you can't communicate on YouTube or you can't, I mean, we, we're building a society that has all these ways to communicate but they're also building an apparatus to control that communication in a way that is anathema to everything that a free United States of America stands for. And we talk about that some in Tuesday's piece, Minority Medical Opinion Squelch. But punching Fauci, um, we did get it out. And what this piece is about is a candidate who happened to lose. It was a close race. He, he did better as a Republican than than the, the makeup of Democrat-Republican vote. You know, he, he did better than Trump did last time in that same district. Uh, but the guy's name is Hung Cao. He came over to the United States when he was four uh, from Vietnam. Uh, and, and he went to the Naval Academy. He's been in the military. He's done a lot of things. And he's one of these uh, no-nonsense, you know, uh, rough, tough, uh, but seems like a very nice guy. He's also very bright. Um, and there's a great commercial with he and his wife uh, where they were mentioning they were homeschoolers and they wanted schools to where parents had more say-so and so on. And then as they're doing the commercial, she looks over at him at the last second and says, who's got the kids? And he does this, oh my goodness. And it's, it's uh, very well done. I'm sure someone, you know, there are babysitters, but it was a nice, nice touch. And uh, and he's great on term limits. He said career politicians are a cancer uh, and, and could speak to these different issues. But the reason I did this piece, um, I was enjoying the commercials, but, I, I, you know, I'm really busy around election time and it's not my district. And I wasn't really able to look into it until I'd already voted. And of course, I'm not in that district. I can't vote for him anyway. But I kind of, I liked him the whole time, not knowing what some of his positions were. And so I decided, well, I should go look. I don't know. Somehow I got, I, I was somewhere where I didn't have anything I could do. So I got on my phone and looked up. Uh, and I found this article where he spoke to this WJLA, uh, which a television station also has a, a radio presence in the DC area. They actually took the ads and said, here's what they say. And then they asked the candidates. And then when the one candidate would say, well, here's the truth about that ad, they went back to the other candidate and said, well, he says this. And it was just super informative. And I thought it's almost like, you know, in, in most of these districts, refusing to debate. Uh, that's a democratic thing now. You know, it's it's a, it's usually an incumbent thing. It's been largely bipartisan that incumbents won't debate, uh, which is a good reason to knock them out. And it's a good reason for term limits because when you you've reached the level that I, I don't believe in the system anymore, I just believe in my own power. You can say that very clearly and distinctly by saying I'm not going to debate. And uh, anyway. Uh, but he, one of the things they hit him with is, uh, is that um, he had said he wanted to punch Fauci. And he's a colorful guy. He speaks in, you know, kind of macho military terms. And he, he doesn't come across, he just comes across as, a, as a, a, a sweet man. He doesn't come across in any threatening way, you know, just verbally and otherwise. But he, I think he was joking, and, he, and, and so he said, look, I didn't say I wanted to punch Fauci. I said, if I could punch Fauci and get away with it, I or if I could punch somebody and get away with it, it would be Fauci and Zuckerberg. So he also, he was two for two. 
Uh, yeah, so they didn't want to talk about the Zuckerberg because everybody wants to do that, right? <laughs> That's right. That's right. It doesn't make you unique, but but um, but it was it, it was it was great to see that comeback and 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 to be able to know. Okay, here's exactly what he said. And anyway, I just thought and and he wasn't. You know, you could kind of tell this is just it was very genuine because it, you know, there's no there was no concern. Well, I really would like to punch him, you know, and and, and we see this constantly. I mean, I've seen I saw before I saw the explanation, I'd seen that ad a, a bunch of times. We're not smart enough to have TiVo and other stuff to, to protect ourselves from the ads. We don't watch that much TV, but but not watching much TV except for sports and and some news stuff. Yeah, I'm seeing that ad all the time. Anyway, the other thing in the ad was to tie him to January 6th. And his explanation for that was, uh, I didn't have anything to do with January 6th. I don't think what they did was good. It was bad. It's bad. There's no place for violence. And on January 6th, I was coming back from a tour of duty uh, and, you know, and doing Christmas because his kids had missed Christmas. They decided to wait for their dad and so on. Anyway, it was one of those things where I wish I could have transferred my vote from my district uh, to that district and voted for Hung Cow. And, uh, and I, I would say, I hope he runs again. I would be fine if he does run again. Uh, but I wouldn't, I, I, I hope that just that he stays active in some way or another because a very good presence and uh, and good presentation and and seems to be very well well um, what do you, what do you call that I've lost the term uh, just just you know uh, level headed level headed and and has a good sense of humor and so on that's nice to see okay now minority medical opinion squelched which was the next day and you've already mentioned it. Uh, is not really about that kind of thing. It's about California has passed legislation to, and I, I say that it, it, it's not necessarily uh, legislation. I think there's some interpretation and so on, but they're basically um, em empowering the medical board there to go after doctors who say anything that's not part of whatever the medical consensus is, which is immediately a political consensus. I mean, we all know that. I'm not saying anything radical there. It's a political consensus. And we are constantly at this point, and it's a cliff. It is, it's just, it's so scary to think that we constantly are on this cliff where all kinds of people are saying we need to control what doctors say. We got to stop Galileo from talking this stuff that isn't what the Bible says. We got to stop that. That is misinformation. And so, and, that's what California has been doing uh, or trying to do, uh, and uh, and and was there some good news on that subject? Well, um, no, it is being challenged. I mean that's the that's the good news, um, but it's it has not been stopped, and um, and you know if it continues, um, you know we we will we will see uh, that in a really important state, um, you know we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna have people, and and we're not not only gonna have people being having the full weight of the government and and the state coming down on them but that's only going to last for so long and and even immediately there're going to be all kinds of people who are otherwise not bad people who are just going to keep their mouth shut and and that's i mean man i've fired doctors as they as i say I've, I've changed doctors i've moved from one to another if they're spouting a line that I don't agree with. And so, and it's that they want me to take statins and I don't want to take statins. This is, this is the, the, the right. And right. You, you probably heard of those. The, the, that I have. I'm and, with you. and more and more major medical figures are going against the idea that statins are a good way to control, prevent heart attacks. 
uh, there's just a lot of there's a lot of reason not to believe that the the medical consensus you used the word consensus a little earlier and you said it was a political consensus of course it's not a consensus really at all because it's being shoved down people's throats you don't you don't need to shove a consensus down anyone's throats a consensus just is but this is uh, a dominant position that really really wants to dominate it's kind of interesting how anybody really cares in a sense that you know I mean, I understand they make a lot of money on their drugs, and that's probably what a lot of this is, whether it's statins or whether it's uh, uh, the injections from Pfizer and Moderna and Johnson & Johnson. Right. And it's, it's um, you know, I mean, it, it, it's the sort of thing where um, on all of these things, it, it, my point, our point, I think we're 100% in the same place, is not we know and and then sometimes we do know certain things i mean you're you're interested in some of the stuff and you read about it and i do as well and my wife's very interested in medical stuff and she's always telling me stuff and i know i know that she's always right um but it's it's uh it's not so much that that on all of this stuff that boy we've got some great medical knowledge that would miss the point the point is there has to be a system in which information can flow and can't be blocked. Once it's blocked, you are asking for well, what you're asking for. There was a there was a comment here, and I responded to it. I'm not sure if it's on this. Uh, if I I may not have uh, been approved yet. I have to get approved here. It's uh, it's terrible. What kind of people are running this site anyway? Um, uh, Victor Justice. Uh, Justice uh, comments on this piece. And so if your physician tells you that you must take a particular medication derived from lunar verdant cheese and will guarantee you two centuries of illness-free life, that's okay with you? I prefer that my physician tell me the truth rather than selling me snake oil. And I thought, well, I want my physician to tell me the truth, too. The problem is, of course, everybody doesn't agree about the truth. And people sometimes have different opinions. And sometimes even when people agree with certain parts of the truth, they don't agree with all of it. And sometimes it's found out in that time right then that, well, this side's right and that side's wrong. But then later, <laughs> we discover, oh, no, we were wrong about you being wrong and you being right. You're wrong and you're right. And, and so we have all kinds of, of problems with fixing truth perfectly. I don't want the government to do it. I think the problems outweigh any of the pluses. So what, what sort of problems? Well, let me tell you a, a problem that maybe people will recall. I think they will. In China, there was this virus, and it was spreading from people. And this doctor discovered it and warned people. But his warning was against the medical, political, the everything, the totalitarian consensus of his country, and he was shut down. And there are estimates that it could have, you know, that 90% maybe of the deaths could have been stopped. I think there are 8 million people who died from that. So somebody may prescribe cheese for your heart condition, you know, and that you rub it on your arm or something. I'd suggest you go see another doctor. And of course, that sort of thing would be would be actionable with malpractice and other, other sorts of things. What we're talking about is pure speech. And, we, and, and yet, I don't think you'll see in any of this discussion in the Washington Post or the New York Times or other places, them recognize, they'd be scared to mention that China made a mistake. Um, but, but recognizing that this, this sort of speech squelching is what happened in China with COVID. 
at the cost of millions. Uh, this idea of um, information being withheld from us, that was also something to do with another piece he wrote this week, a different kind of information. Uh, there was a report on the November 9th he wrote about called Are 1,000 Pages Enough? And that's about whistleblowing in the FBI. 14 whistleblowers, and this was a uh, partisan report. Let's say that right at the outset. This is the Republicans, uh, a 1,000-page report, interviewed 14 whistleblowers and just had a, a laundry list. In fact, uh, I, nobody has that much laundry. Uh, a very long list of things the FBI has done that amount to illegal activity, partisan illegal activity. And one of the interesting things is that uh, while it looks like, and we'll get into that with the next script a little bit about the election, but um, while it looks like Republicans uh, will may or may not uh, change the Senate and take the Senate, uh, it looks like they will take the House. And it's not 100% for certain, but uh, that seems pretty to be likely. pretty likely. That's what everybody's projecting. And they're projecting, I think it's... Uh, 222 to 215, something like that. Uh, maybe it's 213. But anyway, um, and and so Republicans, I, I suggested that Republicans have the ability, since they're likely to take the, the House, to do something about the FBI. And part of that is controlling the purse strings, which the House of Representatives can do and uh, there were two comments uh, on, on that piece uh, that I wanted to mention. Thomas Knapp, uh, who often comments, uh, tells me where I'm wrong. Sometimes he's right. Uh, says he quoted uh, a rampant culture of unaccountability, manipulation and abuse, which is one of the things that the Republican report said about the FBI. He said should appear in the dictionary next to the word government. I thought that was that was very cute. And then Pat pointed out, I said, the House controls the purse strings if it dares. That's how I concluded the piece. And she said, it hasn't the courage. It can have all the investigations it want to, and it will not matter one bit. Reforms will not be passed. Corrupt employees will not be disciplined, let alone dismissed. The GOP establishment is too afraid of Democrats to do anything meaningful for the American people. Jeez, I almost want to read that a second time just to emphasize it. Their voters mean nothing to them at this point. The establishment of both parties share the same goals, protect their own perks, and rule over, not listen to, the American voters. And, and uh, boy, that's... Uh, it's so pessimistic... I'm a much more, I'm a pathological optimist, so I, I, it's hard to connect with that part of it. I hear people all the time, oh, we'll never be able to overcome this. And I'm always thinking, yes, we can. And about, about the future, no reason to be necessarily in about what we can do. I think we ought to be very optimistic because she, uh, uh, Pat is right here. Uh, and, and there are so many people like her. And then when people think, well, why, why do people vote for Donald Trump? People who don't like his manners, who don't like his attitude, don't like his arrogance. Maybe they don't like his, his policies, but, uh, but a lot of people like his policies. I think it's the other stuff. <clears throat> and the reason I think that people opt, opted for him over Hillary Clinton, which was a <laughs> pretty easy opt, and over Biden, and over all the other Republicans that Trump ran against. And I, I'm, I wasn't one of them. I was for the other Republicans when that was happening, one of them, somehow, because um, I was pretty scared of Trump. But there's this understanding. It's not just, I mean, it's just they've seen it again and again. Nothing's going to change. Nothing's going to change. They're not going to do anything about this. They're not going to make people pay a price. And I think about before uh, Trump was even in office, there was the case of the Boeing, uh, the next Air Force One, the president's plane was going to cost 
400 billion or something. It was some astronomical sum. And Trump uh, came out and said, keep it. We're not buying it. Nope. And, uh, and, and, and then his comments caused Boeing stock to like slide a couple points. <laughs> and then they were talking about how outrageous he was that he did this. The American people are dying for someone who will stand up and say, no, we're not putting up with that anymore. We're just not. And I think it's across the board. I think it's on crime. Look, we're not going to, if you're a, a criminal who's committing a violent crime, we're not putting you back out on the street. We're not, I mean, and and I think there's certain legal things you got to follow. So I'm not, I'm not saying don't shortcut anybody's constitutional protection one smidgen. No, but we don't have to let people just, oh, you killed seven people? Well, we'll rush, we'll rush you out the door so you can go kill a couple more before the weekend. Um, and and on all these sorts of things, they're looking for someone who says the buck stops here. And Trump does that. And there's a there's a hunger for that. And it's, you know, maybe it's a little tough guy thing. But it's also right. It is, I'm convinced that seeing pictures of people carrying expensive merchandise out of stores without anybody doing anything kind of encourages people on the edge. I'm not going to a store and robbing it tomorrow. I'm not interested in that. I don't, I don't like to go shopping that much. Uh, but, but that's it. This is, folks on the edge are going to say, hey, why wouldn't we? Why wouldn't we do it? Otherwise, I got to go get a job or otherwise we have we have created a mess. And and the politicians talk, talk crap about it. And everybody hears it. And so it's and, and this I noticed this years ago. This is predates Trump by a good margin, uh, many, many years. And that is when Democrats were in charge and controlled the Congress from 2006 to whatever, um, the, the most vicious things I heard about de the Democratic Congress came from Democrats. They were not popular with Democrats. I mean, they were more popular than, you know, if you did a poll, Democrats would kind of say, yeah, I got to be in favor of them. They did not satisfy their customer base. And I guarantee you that Republicans were not satisfied with the Republicans when they were in power. So the, what that tells you is this is not a matter of, well, we lost the election, so we're mad. The American people are mad all the time because they're not, no matter who wins the election, they don't get what they want. And not even the people who are actively pushing that, that color, the blue or the red team. Okay, now I have to ask about Surfing USA because it seems like you're leading into talking about the uh, Tuesday debacle or I mean the Tuesday elections. Yes, yes, and uh, Surfing USA, uh, great song, and there was no red wave to surf on, and that was kind of the the point. And I I pointed out in this piece I had had a pollster earlier in the year. I was listening to a presentation and just went on and on about how unpopular the Democrats were on just issue after issue. They were underwater at the bottom of the lake. And, uh, and then he stopped and he said, now don't get me wrong. That's not to suggest the public is fond of Republicans. And it was just, you know, because almost everybody on this call was a, they were conservative people and, and mostly very partisan Republicans. They wanted the Republicans to win. And he just made it clear that that's not, uh, uh, you know, that's not the case. They don't love the Republicans. And when you look at why, you know, uh, there a great, great uh, quote by uh, Mark Thiessen, who's a Washington Post columnist, he's on Fox a lot of times. And he said this when he was on Fox. We have the worst inflation in four decades, the worst collapse in real wages in 40 years, the worst crime wave since the 1990s the worst border crisis in U.S. history. We have Joe Biden, who is the least popular president since presidential polling happened. And there wasn't a red wave. And uh, and I suggest in this piece, please go read it at uh, 
this is commonsense.org, Surfing USA, that we have to start splashing. And what that means is I point out that uh, in Virginia in 2021, uh, Glenn Youngkin's campaign didn't somehow create the controversy in, in Loudoun County. Parents who stood up and said no, they created it. And that, that had an impact not only in Loudoun County, where Youngkin lost by close, usually would have lost by a lot more. Uh, but it, it created a, an issue across the whole state because, and, and, and frankly, across the country, uh, and well, it was being created by other parents standing up other places. And I pointed to the term limits movement. You know, the uh, when Republicans first took the Congress uh, in you know, 40 years, Democrat control, this is 1994. Uh, so since the 1950s, they hadn't had control. And uh, they rode a wave that was there because of term limits. And that was an issue that they embraced, but that was created outside of the Republican Party. They were no help. They were opposition for the most part. And it was only Newt Gingrich deciding that he couldn't capitalize on the momentum out in the country against Clinton unless he made term limits part of it, because he hated term limits. So um, interesting little history there. But uh, we got to do some things to create a better country. And, and sometimes part of that is for people to start thinking about issues that cause good people to run for office or cause people to see races in which they decide, well, this is the better person because this is the more important issue. So uh, an issue like term limits, I think, had a huge impact. And, uh, and I think there are other issues out there that, that, uh, that may be able to do that as well. This week, uh, Donald Trump claimed uh, credit for Youngkin's success in Virginia. I don't know if you heard that. Uh, he's been mocking uh, his, his two main uh, competitors, Youngkin's and... and yeah. The Sanctimonious. The Sanctimonious uh, was a good joke. It's a good play on words. But his play on words with Youngkin's was stupid. Something about China and, you know, Youngkin. And that, was, that, was, that was dumb. Uh, but he also said that he was responsible for Youngkin's uh, emergence. And I think that you're probably more likely right that it was a spontaneous emergence from the people in this case. A re rejection yes. of the democratic policy of lording it over everybody when it comes to education. The Democrats always know what's best and they are going to push down whatever goofy idea they have and do it through the uh, public schools. And uh, in Virginia, they said, well, that's probably not a good idea. Trump's role, kind of funny, because I think he, he did have a uh, rally somewhere in Virginia, I, I believe, uh, during that campaign. Youngkin was in a different part of the state. Youngkin, uh, never to my knowledge, said anything negative about Trump. Almost every Democratic ad hit Youngkin on being Trump's guy. Every single ad was Trump. They ran against Trump, not Youngkin. Youngkin ran a brilliant campaign where not a single Trump supporter decided to vote against him because he dissed Trump, because he never dissed him, never said anything negative about him, uh, but he avoided that area uh, religiously. And, uh, and Trump, to his credit, didn't, you know, didn't throw some tantrum or, or, you know, complain about it or anything else. It was smart politics. And, uh, and, and you know, it's, it's probably smarter not to reach out and slap Trump if you don't have to. Uh, and, and I think that's why I think, um, I think this is a, is high praise for both Youngkin and DeSantis that Trump has reached out to hit them so quickly. Speaking of hitting people. <laughs> We're back to Fauci. Now look, Tim. Yeah, this this looks, looks like uh, Democrats have a funny way of um, getting their way. And this turns out to be not by hitting their opponents, but by supporting the people they hate the most. If you're a pro-Trump candidate, the Democrats have some money for you. Um, and, and, uh, these, these races now they didn't, uh, you know, sometimes the pro-Trump candidate won, uh, and of course these are, you know, they kind of picked which candidates they gave to, but, and, and they did this before they did this in Missouri. Uh, this is how, what, what's her name? 
I want to say McCluskey. Uh, oh, gosh, I can't believe I can't think of her name. Um, but Claire McCaskill, Claire McCaskill, uh, senator from last Democratic senator from Missouri. She was senator for two terms, should have just been one. She was not popular, but the Democrats spent a ton of money highlighting uh, Aiken, Todd Aiken, and attacking him as the, you know, and, and, in attacking him in such a way as to make him the the arch conservative the and and they helped him win the republican primary and he's the guy who said something about uh uh that women can't get pregnant if they're raped which of course is just not accurate um and and that became a big deal and Claire McCaskill uh ran a smart campaign and won in a state that she shouldn't have won in. And, and that's what the Democrats were looking to do here is to highlight and 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 help pick the Republican they're going to run against and pick the Republican who they think is the weakest Republican. And they did that in New Hampshire. Whether that was the weakest Republican or not, I don't know. Uh, they did it twice in New Hampshire, according to this, right? Well, what now? in two cases in New Hampshire. They did it also in a in a uh, uh, congressional race too. Yeah. They did it, and uh, and I know a couple of friends I have in New Hampshire wanted uh, uh, Morse, who they thought was a stronger candidate to win, and that's who came in second. So it's it's uh, in the primary, you know, and then... they, they had some effect here uh, and a positive effect. But I think the the real message that I want everybody to take from that is. They either don't believe what they're saying about Trump and about these election deniers. They're saying they're going to destroy America as we know it, our democracy. And, and to most of us, that means like a free republic with constitutional laws and representative you know, process and so on. They're going to destroy all that. Well, if you believe that, I don't think you write them a check and send it to them unless you don't care. So either there's a huge number of Democrats, very well-financed Democrats, who either don't believe their BS or believe it, but don't really care what happens to the country. They only care whether I win this next election. And frankly, I think most people out there, uh, no matter where they are on the spectrum, pretty much believe that. I mean, that's kind of what uh, Pat was saying with her thing. Yes, we we now have been, we have, we've had our noses rubbed in the corruption that is Washington from both parties so many times that when you tell us we can't trust anything they're going to do, if you suggest, no, the Republicans aren't going to be any different by taking the Congress, it'll be show, but no substance. The vast majority of Americans, how could they not kind of say, well, even if I don't want to believe it, I know that's the likely outcome. And frankly, it is the likely outcome. These people are going to do what's in their self-interest. And unless we can somehow make it in their self-interest to do the right thing, they're not likely to stumble upon the right thing. Well, is that an apt moment to end the podcast or not? It is. It is an apt moment. And maybe we'll have to keep thinking about ways to uh, to help them. <laughs> well, I'll do my part to try to find apt moments. That's all I can do. <laughs> all right. Well, hey, thank you for the week, sir. And uh, we will live to fight another week. I guess so. I guess so. Mm -hmm.